And so, as we've been saying, this Sunday marks the first day of Advent, and this is the season in the church calendar when we remember and celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And while it's a season of looking back, it's also a season filled with anticipation. My hope is that over the course of the next four weeks, as we make our way through the chaos of the holidays, that we would take time to intentionally cultivate and nurture a hopeful anticipation for the coming of our King. Over the summer, when we were working through our series on spiritual formation, we talked a lot about cultivating rhythms and practices that create time and space for God, through His Spirit, to shape and form us into the image of His Son, Jesus. And so Advent is one of those times during the year that we can tap into to do just that. My encouragement to you is that you've been, if you have been putting off implementing some of the things that we discussed over the summer, then maybe this season can serve as an opportunity for you. If you haven't yet tried fasting, then maybe pick one meal a week where you refrain from eating and spend that time reflecting on the coming of Christ. This might be the perfect time of year to start practicing Sabbath setting aside a day of true rest where you push back against the chaos of this season, one day a week where you don't go Christmas shopping, where you don't write those Christmas cards or, or busy yourself over your to-do list for the season, but rather enjoy that time with your family, time worshiping God. Maybe some of these things are dreams that feel too big, so I would encourage you to start small as we talk a lot about here at Redeemer Fellowship. Spend a few minutes each morning in silence. Read slowly through one of the Gospels each morning for the next four weeks. My encouragement, instead of simply falling into the regular patterns of the holiday season, let, let's allow the Spirit of God and the wisdom of 2,000 years of church history be the thing that shapes and forms us over the next four weeks. And so speaking of the next four weeks, our theme for this Advent season is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Each Sunday, we will be looking at different ways the New Testament writers understood the prophetic words of the Old Testament. What did it mean when Isaiah said that the virgin shall conceive a son? When Ezekiel said that God would himself be the shepherd of his sheep? Why does Matthew quote some obscure passage from the prophet Hosea, Hosea about calling his son out of Egypt? And what does the stump of Jesse have to do with Jesus? Which brings us to our first point this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 27 just for a few minutes. To set the scene, what we're about to read takes place right after the resurrection. It starts like this. On that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus in verse 13 of chapter 24, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had just happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love that, right? He's just like, what are you talking about? What's going on? What things? 
And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. The whole point of this discussion that Jesus has with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus is to show us that this entire event that occurred in the life of Christ over these last few days that they were recounting to Jesus, not knowing that it was him that they were looking at, the whole point of all of that was the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament scriptures had been talking about. Everything that their Bibles, the stories that they grew up on, was pointing towards this man all these things that happened. It says that they had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And then he answers, then he responds to that, was it not necessary? Was it not necessary that I would suffer or that the Messiah would suffer and die and go through the very things that you just experienced over the last few weeks? See, they didn't fully understand their scriptures. In verse 27, beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The reason why I want to start Advent here this season is because I believe it is important for us to understand something. What Jesus is explaining to these two individuals as they make their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, to Emmaus is that the key to understanding the story of the Old Testament is standing right in front of them. The arrival of Jesus is wrapped up in both the story of Israel as the faithful son of David who is seated on the everlasting throne of 2 Samuel and the story of the world as the second advent, Adam, who selflessly chose the tree of life by dying on it. Jesus and his story is wrapped up in the story of Israel and the story of the world as the new Adam. To quote the Bible Project, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And his arrival was the anticipation and hope of the Old Testament now fulfilled. And that's what we're going to be wrestling with over the next four weeks. That's what we're going to be looking at as we look at how these New Testament writers work through these Old Testament passages. So let's read about that arrival. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Verses 18 through 25. We're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning. So I would encourage you to be ready for that. Have your Bibles. Get ready. We're going, to, we're going to be jumping back and forth between the New and the Old Testament. And so in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it reads as follows. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Matthew, what he's doing here is he's retelling the story of Jesus' birth and Joseph's encounter with an angel. And, and what's interesting about the way Matthew frames this is that he really focuses on the story of Joseph here. He's really trying to draw our attention in on, on the husband of Mary or the betrothed of Mary. And in verse 22, it says that this all happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew is quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, typically, when a New Testament writer quotes or alludes to an Old Testament verse, it's their way of quoting or alluding to the entire section. Right? He's not just saying, look at this one verse. He's saying, I want you to look at that entire section. Similar to if, if you're working on your computer and you click on a hyperlink, it, it brings you to an entire page of information, not just one little sentence. And that's what's going on here. See, back in those days, they didn't have chapters and verses you know, dividing up their Bibles. And so what Matthew wants us to see is an entire context, an entire story. And so let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7 to understand what Matthew wants us to learn. And so Isaiah chapter 7. This happens right after Isaiah's call in chapter 6 where he's, where he's in the heavenly places. He's looking at the throne of God and he's like, I, I can't be here. I'm a man of unclean lips. That whole entire story. And then he's sent to talk to a king. He's sent to talk to King Ahaz. And it says this in chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim or Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shira Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand. That's not going to happen, is what 
the Lord says to Ahaz, and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. What's going on here? First thing, Ahaz was a king of Judah, and he was in the line of David, of the house of David. That's really important that we understand that. What's happening is that the king of Syria and the king of Israel, this is after Israel had been divided, so there's Israel and Judah, formed an alliance to wage war against Judah, and Ahaz was terrified. What does it say? It says, in verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's how scared they were. They were trembling. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz as a source of encouragement and as a challenge to remind Ahaz who he is. Isaiah tells Ahaz, be careful, be quiet. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. And then he speaks a word of God to him in verses 7 through 9, basically saying, this isn't going to happen. I got you. I'm your God. You are my chosen people. What you're frightened of will not happen. Be firm in faith. Be firm in faith. In other words, trust the promises of God, the promises that he made you king over Judah, that you are of the house of David. And then it says in verses 10 through 12, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you? No, right there. We'll stop there. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what happens? Where are we at here? Isaiah instructs Ahaz to demonstrate his faith by asking God for a sign to which Ahaz replies, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first glance, it sounds like Ahaz is this noble, godly man. But that's not what's happening here. That's not what's going on. So, so there's a pattern that's being built here. There's some jarring news that's received. is the first thing that happens, that these two nations are coming against him. A messenger from God appears, the second thing that happens. That messenger instructs them, instructs Ahaz, do not fear but walk in faith, right? A jarring, jarring news is received. A message from God appears. Do not fear, walk in faith. Let's see what happens. Question we need to wrap our minds around is who is Ahaz? Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 16 to learn a little bit about who this man is. We need to go back and see a little bit about his story. So 2 Kings 16, it says in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. This is not a good guy. All right, we, we track him. This is not a good guy. 
according to the, the, the despicable practice of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath and the Edomites to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz, and this is where I need you to pay attention. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilsir, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the, from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. What's going on? What's going on? The text says that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. So he's a son of David. He's of the house of David. It also says that he burned his son as an offering. So he's not a good guy. And then verses 7 through 9 tell us all we need to know about how Isaiah, how Ahaz responded to Isaiah's plea. Instead of trusting in the promises of God, what does Ahaz do? He puts his trust in the wisdom, power, and institutions of the world around him. He entrusts himself to the king of Assyria. Ahaz, instead of entrusting himself to God and the promises of God, he entrusts himself to the nations, to the king of Assyria. As we zoom out, we learn that Ahaz is not firm in faith, and that his desire to not put the Lord to the test is simply an empty gesture to shut up the mouth of the prophet. It's an empty gesture to shut up the mouth of the prophet. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 7. Verses 13 through 17. And he said, hear then, now Isaiah is speaking again in response to this, I, I will not put the Lord to the test language that Ahaz puts forth. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Right? Isaiah is pulling out all the stops. Isaiah is like, you know, I'm done with you. I've given you a message of encouragement. I've given you a message of hope. And this is how you respond to my God. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to ask for a sign? Well, guess what? God's going to give you one anyway. God's going to give you one anyway. And he says this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Isaiah addresses the house of David meaning that these are not simply words for Ahaz. And he says, you might not want a sign, but God doesn't bow to you, nor does he bow to Assyria. So you're going to receive a sign. And verse 14 tells us what that sign is. A virgin or a young woman will conceive and bear a son. 
a virgin or a young woman, the word can mean both of those. In fact, it probably is closer to a young woman. So here's a little sidebar to talk a little bit about how the Bible uses prophecy. This young woman, in the immediate context, is most likely Isaiah's wife, and the child is most likely Isaiah's son, whom we read about in chapter 8. But while there is an immediate fulfillment to these words of the prophet, what we'll see in just a few minutes is that there is also an ultimate or eschatological fulfillment to the words of the prophet. A child, which Isaiah speaks about in chapter 9, who will uphold the government upon his shoulders, is the child that is the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about. But what Isaiah is getting at now is that Ahaz, yeah, you're going to be spared for a while, but calamity is coming to your house. Calamity is coming to your house. That's the sign that he is being given. Let's keep observing here, right? He says in verse 16 that Israel and Syria will not overtake you. And in verse 17, the one in whom you entrusted yourself to, the king of Assyria, will actually be the source of your ruin. The point is that the house of David, represented by King Ahaz, forgot who they were. They forgot who they were. Instead of entrusting his people to the hands of Yahweh, King Ahaz entrusted his people to the king of Assyria. Instead of entrusting his people and himself to Yahweh, he entrusts himself to the hands of the king of Assyria. One scholar makes the point far better than I can, and I have a, a slide for this. He says, Ahaz may have had every political skill, logic, the harvested results of diplomatic experience, all the facts of the real world, but when the people of God operate by what stands to reason rather than what proceeds from faith, when they seek safety in the resources, policies, and powers of the world, the king of Assyria instead of the king, the Lord Almighty, the things they trust guarantee their calamity. That's a heavy quote. It's a heavy quote. In other words, the kingdom of God and the salvation of his people arrive not in might, power, or what the facts of the real world tend to uphold, but rather in the weakness and frailty of a child. And the question we need to wrestle with is whether or not we will truly entrust ourselves to that sort of kingdom. Will we entrust ourselves to that sort of kingdom? Let's flip back to Matthew and see what's going on here. Now, we already read the text, so I don't think we need to read it again. The text states that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal or engagement in this culture was far different from our modern understanding. It was a legally binding relationship, so much so that in verse 19, Joseph is referred to as her husband. The text says that Mary was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Now, we learn a few things about Joseph as we read through this text. We learn that he is a just man or a righteous man. We also learn that he is a compassionate man. Joseph is just, righteous, and compassionate, but he's also a man who doesn't want to marry a woman who's been running around on him, right? So he might be just and compassionate, but he doesn't want to marry this woman if what he perceives to be the case is true. But then he's visited in a dream by an angel. 
And the angel of the Lord says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the pattern kind of plays out again, right? Some jarring news is received. Mary's pregnant. A messenger from God appears. The messenger from God says, do not fear. Walk in faith. The same pattern that was given to the son of David, Ahaz, is given to this son of David, Joseph. Notice what it says about Joseph. He is a son of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. That's important for us to understand. We have two sons of David in this story. One, King Ahaz, who entrusts himself to the world and logic of the world system. And then we have this other son of David, Joseph, who receives jarring news, is, is, is visited by a messenger from God, is told to not fear, and what does he do? He responds in faith. This is so cool. Do you guys see what's kind of developing here? This is phenomenal. I love the way the biblical writers tell the story of Jesus because the story was embedded in the Old Testament and it points so clearly to the person and work of Jesus. And so what is happening here? Joseph, son of David, like I said, this is important. Joseph is of the line of David. He's told to not be afraid, to go ahead with the wedding. It's not what you think. There's bigger things going on here. The child in Mary's womb is actually the child all of creation has been waiting for. He then instructs the ch Joseph to name the child, and this is really important. In naming the child, Joseph takes on the role of his legal father, which ensures that the child's official status status of the son and heir, it is through this act of Joseph that Jesus also becomes a son of David. Just tracking here? And then he says this, you shall call his name Jesus. The name of Jesus is Greek for Joshua, which means God saves. And this is why he is given the name. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The text then says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. I apologize, guys. I'm not feeling 100%. You could probably tell. So bear with me. Remember the context of Isaiah 7. Israel and Syria are bearing down on Judah, and Ahaz is scared. Isaiah is sent by God to bring a word of comfort, encouraging Ahaz to entrust himself and his people to Yahweh and the promise given to the house of David. But Ahaz refuses this word, and takes matters into his own hands by entrusting himself and his people to the king of Assyria. Isaiah then speaks this prophetic word about a young woman or a virgin bearing a child, and that by the time this child is old enough to choose between good and evil, the threat of Syria and Israel will be handled. But then, in a stroke of irony, the very hands that Ahaz entrusted his people to, the king of Assyria, it is through those hands that God will bring judgment upon the house of David. But see, God is faithful. And that is the entire point that Matthew is making. The child served as a sign to King Ahaz, but ultimately the sign pointed beyond itself. While it's true that the wickedness of King Ahaz seemingly, 
sealed the fate for the house of David. God's promise to rule and reign would not be frustrated by the unfaithfulness of his people. God's promise to rule and reign would not be frustrated by his people. And so this birth, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the trust and faithfulness of Mary, but also Joseph, a son of David, who leaned not on the facts of the world and human reason, but on the word of God spoken to him through the angel. This birth paves the way for the child of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The point, the ultimate point that I want to drive at this morning, the virgin birth of Jesus, the true son of David, is God saying, I keep my promises. And my promise was and is that the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham and that that seed will flower in and through the house of David in the person and work of Jesus who will save you from your sins and dwell with you through the Holy Spirit, Emmanuel, God with us. As we close, we're going to wrap up quickly this morning. Where I believe this lands for us And I think this is what's really important for us to wrap our minds around. Beyond the beauty and wonder of Christ and the salvation we possess as his blood-bought body is in the decision we all face as those who are called to be in this world, but not of it. What we have in the story of Matthew chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 7 is a tale of two sons, King Ahaz, when confronted with the word of God through the lips of Isaiah to entrust himself to Yahweh and his promises, he chose the king of Assyria and the idolatry of the nations. Joseph, the second son of David, when confronted with the word of God through the lips of the angel to entrust himself to God and his promise, he chose God and in so doing, the fulfillment of David's throne was secured through a faith that ran contrary to every bit of worldly wisdom and common sense. Jarring news was received, a word from God. Do not fear, walk in faith. We too are faced with these decisions on a daily basis. Will we entrust ourselves to the upside down and seemingly foolish ways of the kingdom? Or will we allow ourselves to be taken by the kings of this world and the idolatry of the nations. That is the decision that we are faced with on a daily basis as followers of God. That is what is constantly confronting us as the people of Jesus. Which path are we going to choose? The word of God teaches us that forgiveness and compassion are what brings life, while the culture calls for vengeance. The word of God teaches us that humility leads to flourishing while the culture esteems arrogance and self-reliance as virtue. The word of God teaches self-reliance and and the word of God teaches self-sacrifice and self-denial while the culture teaches us to do you and pursue whatever it is that your heart desires. The word of God teaches submission while the culture teaches autonomy. 
to get political for a moment as we enter into the beginning of the 2024 election cycle. The culture teaches us that peace, greatness, and safety will come through worldly institutions and policies, while the word of God presents a crucified king and a kingdom marked by love, compassion, and humility. Joshua's question to Israel is the same for us. Choose this day whom you will serve. The coming of Jesus marks the unleashing of the kingdom of God, and it is a kingdom marked by the self-sacrificial love of Christ. When we choose the kingdom, we choose love, and in so doing, we show the world what God is like. That's good news, Redeemer. That's good news. That runs contrary to everything we know that this world teaches us. Submission, humility, that Philippians 2 passage that we constantly go back to, the mind of Christ that we are to possess. It runs contrary to everything that this world wants us to operate as. But he's calling us to be those representatives, to live out the faith that we have claimed as followers of Jesus. We have been bought with a price. We are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. We will be in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. And now he's saying, go and live in light of that freedom. Go and live in light of that calling that I have placed upon your life. Are we going to be as Ahaz or are we going to be as Joseph? That's, that's the challenge for us this morning. That's what I was wrestling with all week as I was working through this. And yeah, the political thing is the easy, you know, layup of, a, of, a, of an application, but it's strong. It's strong in our culture. And so we need to recognize that. But it's not just in politics. It's how we respond to, to, to frustrations in our marriage. It's how we respond to our children. It's how we respond to frustrations at work. Are we going to take the road that Jesus has laid out for us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, or are we going to respond as the world responds? So God's calling us to walk in faith, not in fear. That's what this story is, is teaching us. It's challenging us with. And so that's my challenge to us this morning. I'm going to pray now because I don't think I have anything else left to say, and I think my body is telling me it's time. So let's go to the Lord and, um, and let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for how you love us. We truly do. We thank you for the wonder of the cross, the wonder of the resurrection, the, the wonder of this season, Lord God, as we anticipate your coming, Lord God. Help us. Help us to cultivate um, a spirit of, of dependence upon you, Lord God. A spirit of anticipation, Lord God, that we would not get caught up in the ways of this world, Lord God, but rather we would submit ourselves to you, Father. We love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.